Thank you, Lee. It is so good to be with you today, whether you're here in person or you're watching online. It really is great to have you with us. If you don't know me, my name is Ben, and I have the privilege of leading St. Thomas's along with Lee and a fantastic staff team. Now, before we go any further, I would love for you to grab a Bible if you're at home. If you're in church, um, please grab a smartphone or something and turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be reading from verses 21 to 35 together. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and everything he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could repay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back the debt he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. So today we're looking at this fantastic, hard-hitting parable from Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And we're going to apply these verses from this amazing scripture to our lives. We're going to look at them in their original context. We're going to go through them verse by verse. And then we're going to apply them to our lives. But first, some context. For those of you that were here last week, you'll remember that we were looking at Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is teaching about how to deal with sin in the church or how to deal with somebody when they've offended you. And Jesus basically says in this teaching, look, if somebody offends you, you go directly to the person that has upset you. You don't talk about it to anybody else, not your mum, not your best friend, not your cousin, not your dog. Don't talk to anyone about it. Go straight to the person that's offended you. If you can't deal with it, then you get some others involved. And Jesus' heart is for reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace. Now, Jesus is picking up that Pete, um, sorry, Peter's picking up that Jesus is talking about having healthy relationships. And therefore, 
Peter quickly realizes if he's going to do some conflict resolution with the people that have upset him, it's going to mean that he has to do some level of forgiveness. Now, before we look at these verses, I just want to say a massive thank you to um, quite a few of you who have written in to say how you're applying those verses from Matthew 18 last week in your family, in your marriages, in your workplace. And that is what we want. We want the Bible, to, and it does have the power to completely change and transform lives. So Peter quickly realizes, okay, Jesus, if I'm going to have to do reconciliation with people, I'm going to have to forgive them. And so he says to Uh, He says to Jesus in verse 21, look at it, Peter, having heard what Jesus said, offers to say, I'll repay and forgive somebody, I'll forgive somebody seven times. Now to understand why Peter suggests that he forgives somebody seven times, there's a little detail that we need to know, and it's this. There was some popular teaching going around the time of Jesus that all of the disciples would have been aware of. Everyone would have been aware of it. And it was this. You forgive somebody up to three times if they've sinned against you. But when it's the third time, you give them a third and final warning. And you say, right, you've done that thing three times against me now. And so this is your final warning. If you do it a fourth time, I will not forgive you. And so when Peter says to Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven times. Peter's basically trying to, trying to play the big man. And he's saying, look, Jesus, I know that all of the rabbis say that I should only forgive three times, but I'm going to forgive seven times. Are you impressed with that, Jesus? I've heard you say, Jesus, that my righteousness has to surpass that even of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees say three times, I say seven How about that, Jesus? You impressed with me? You know, it's a little bit like me walking around and saying, well, you know, I've got got two degrees. Sound impressive? And then John Pearson, who's in the house somewhere today, our church warden, says, well, you know what, Ben? I've got five, and one of them's a PhD, and I'm a doctor. You know, it's just Peter's just trying to get some one-upmanship on everybody else. What Peter hasn't realized yet is how much Jesus expects our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. Jesus isn't interested in just religion and ticking boxes. He wants our life to be completely transformed. Peter hasn't yet realized how long and high and wide and deep is the love of God that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. We see this in verse 22. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, I can just imagine Peter doing the maths. 70 times seven. 490. Okay, Jesus, does that mean that on the 469th time, I give them a final warning, and then if they do it again, that's it? You know, if Maddie upsets me 469 times, do I keep a little tally on my phone Maddie, and tick all of the times she's upset me. This isn't a real life example, Maddie, by the way. 469 times. 469th time I say to her, Maddie, final warning now. And then if she does it again, I write her off as a friend. No, Jesus doesn't mean that. Jesus picks a big number to say that we should always forgive. 
Now, we've been talking over the past few weeks about how countercultural Jesus' teaching is. And this week's is no different. You know, you hear it all of the time, don't you? On TV, in popular culture, perhaps your friends say it, I will never forgive that person. I'll never be able to forgive them for what they have done. Should we really do what Jesus is saying here? Well, the problem is that unforgiveness completely ruins people's lives. I read a study just a couple of years ago now in a national newspaper that was about the top five regrets of the dying. And in the top five regrets of the dying, I think it was number two or number three was, I wish I'd made peace with so-and-so. I wish I'd made peace with my mum or my dad. I wish I'd made peace with my brother or my sister or my auntie or whoever it was. And to have peace with people, you need to offer forgiveness. I was reading an article about mental health the other day. And in this article, it was talking about the power unforgiveness can have over people, but how it can lead to resentment and anger, how it can even lead to memory loss and rage. But the way of Jesus leads to freedom and healing. You know, I don't say to Ollie, three times and you're out, or 469 times Ollie and you're out. Instead, we work towards reconciliation. Now, this is challenging for us because it takes courage and it takes humility. And this is not always easy. But more than that, forgiving others means living out the gospel. This is what this parable is about. And to illustrate this, Jesus tells this story, and it is a really, really gripping story. This parable is absolutely fantastic. So look at verse 23 with me. Jesus introduces us to the first character in the parable. And this character is a king. Now, this king is incredibly wealthy. He's so wealthy that he can give loads and loads of his money away to people on loan. And we'll just see how much money he gives in just a moment. Now, these details are very important. And as I said, we'll apply them to our lives when we get to the end of the parable. But basically, we have this king. And he's very wealthy. But he wants to settle all of the debts that he has with all of his subjects. Now, the second person that we're introduced to in verse 24 is a servant. Now, don't think of a poor servant here. Think of more like a wealthy landowner who is somehow reporting to the king. Now, he owes the king some money. And in Matthew 18, we're told that he owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, this is an unbelievably large amount of money. You may be sat here today thinking, how much money is that? Well, just to put this in, I'll try and translate Jesus' currency into pound sterling for you in 2020. So one talent was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii was 20 years of the average worker's wage. So let's do some, let's do some translation into, into pound sterling now. So the average salary in the UK is 28,000 pounds. If you times 28,000 pounds by 20, you get 560,000. We then need to times that number by 10,000. In today's currency, this man was in debt to the tune of at least 5.6 billion pounds. It was basically a debt that he could 
not pay. There was no way that he would ever be able to pay the king back. That 5.6 billion pounds, by the way, is just a conservative estimate. One Bible scholar that I read on this in a commentary said the figure is more likely to be something like a gazillion, like just a number that we cannot even imagine. The point is that the servant is in debt. There's no way that he can pay it off. Now, in verse 25, the king orders that this man pay off the debt himself. That's the only way for the debt to be paid. And the king, by the way, is within his complete legal rights to do this. He gets to set the laws. He gives his subjects everything. And so he is in within his complete legal right to say to the man, you need to pay it back. Now, this servant by now is in a completely terrible state. What does he do? He owes this king an astronomical amount of money, and there's no way he'll ever be able to pay him back. So look at what he does in verse 26. The servant comes and throws himself at the king's feet and cries, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything that I owe. He's so desperate, he just throws himself at the feet of the king. Now look at how the king responds in verse 27. The king shows this servant mercy and love and compassion. He's filled with love for this, uh, for this servant. And despite the fact that this servant owes him such a huge amount of money, this king, in his grace, takes the IOU that the servant owes, rips it up, and says to him, you are free. You're free. You're free from this debt. Go and live your life. It's an amazing act of grace. Now this servant walks away from this meeting with the king knowing that he deserved jail. He walks away knowing that he should spend the rest of his life trying to pay off this debt, although he'll never be able to do it. And instead he walks away free. Can you imagine the relief? Can you imagine the burden that must have been lifted off him? Now, you'd think that this show of generosity would completely change the way that this man lived. Can you imagine if you'd basically been given 5.6 billion pounds? It would transform your life. And if it was such a generous gift of grace, you'd think that it would transform the way that you think about others, the way that you treat others. You think it would transform everything about your life. But does it transform this man? We'll have a look at verse 28. The servant, as we know, walks out from this meeting with the king, a completely free man. His debt has gone. But what he thinks now is, okay, I've, I've, my debt's been gone, but I now have nothing. And so what I need to do is get some startup cash from somewhere. Otherwise, I'm going to be on the streets. You know, I need some cash so I can buy a little flat or rent somewhere, buy a bicycle maybe so I can get around or have some startup cash for some business. So what he does is he suddenly remembers that there's another servant who owes him a very small amount, just a few silver coins. Now again, to do some maths, a few silver coins in the Greek here is basically the equivalent of two months' wages. So to translate that into pounds sterling, we're talking about just a, a few thousand pounds that this man is owed. It is nothing compared to what he owed the king. But rather than being transformed by this amazing act of generosity, this servant walks up to this servant who owes him just a few coins, grabs him by, by the scruff of the neck, and begins to choke him. 
And he says to him, give me my money. Give me my money right now. Well, as this man is being choked, we read in verse 29 that he falls to his knees and cries out for mercy. Have mercy on me. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, this is an exact mirror image of what the first servant said to the king. And you would have thought that this, um, this servant would have been reminded of this. He was in a far worse position than this servant that owed him a few, just a few coins. You'd have think that this show of grace and mercy would have transformed him. But instead, his heart is revealed. He's cold. He's angry. And he will not forgive the person who owes him. He's basically a wicked and evil man. Now in verse 31, all of the other king's subjects begin to hear about this. Uh, this would have been a big news story. Can you imagine if 5.6 billion pounds had just been wiped, wiped off your record? That's the kind of story that would make the news, isn't it? 5.6 billion pounds just handed to you so that you could pay off that debt. Everybody in the town or the city or wherever this parable is set, everybody would have known that this man had walked away free from the king. And everybody also knows that he's gone up to somebody else straight after leaving the meeting with the king and choked them and asked for a few pounds. And so what does everyone do? They go straight to the king and they tell him. Now the king is not happy. He's not happy at all. So he calls the first servant back into his office and he says to him, verse 32, you wicked servant. Now the Greek word here is ponia. It means evil, detestable, morally bankrupt. This is a very, very strong word for the king to use. And then look at what he says in verse 33. I showed you an amazing amount of grace, the king basically says. And yet you couldn't even show mercy to this man who owed you just a few coins. I forgave you so much and you're not willing to forgive so little? It's a rhetorical question, of course. And the answer should be, yes, I should have done that. Well, in verse 34, this king has this man thrown into jail to be tortured. The king is not going to put up with this kind of behavior. The king expected his grace and his generosity and his mercy to transform the first servant's heart. But instead, his heart is bitter and angry. He's resentful and it's completely ruined him and his future. Now this is a gripping parable. Jesus is a master storyteller. But what does it mean for us today? Well, in verse 23, we're introduced to the king. And the king in the parable, of course, represents God. God is a king, and all of us are his subjects. And all of us stand before God with a debt that we cannot pay. He's the king of the whole universe. We're in this parable. We are that first servant that we're introduced to at the beginning of this parable. Now, the reason that we're in this parable is because every sin that I commit 
is not just a sin against Joel or Dan or Maddie or Ollie or whoever it is. Sorry for picking you, all you guys on the front row. It's not just a sin that I commit against my brother, but it's also a sin that I commit against God because God made me to be in perfect relationship with Joel. And so when I sin against Joel, I'm also sinning against God. Now we sin so much because our, our hearts left to their own devices are turned away from God. We sin so much that the debt that we owe before God is so big, we could never, ever possibly pay it off. And to do so would cost more than our life. Now note in the story just how merciful and loving and compassionate the king is towards his servant. The servant throws himself at the feet of the king and says, have mercy on me. And the king is filled with compassion and says to him, you're free. Your debt is cancelled. Now, when we throw ourselves at the feet of God and say, loving God, have mercy on me. Our IOU, just like it was for the servant, is ripped up right in front of us, torn in two. And God says to us, you are free. Ollie, you're free. Megan, you're free. You are free from everything. Go and be free. Now, the question that we should be asking is, well, how does this happen? How does this happen? Surely it's just a case of, if I've sinned 2,000 times, I've sinned a lot more than that, believe you me, but if I've sinned 2,000 times against Helen, for example, does that mean that if I do 2,000 good things to Helen that I'll suddenly be even? And if I do 2,000 good things out there to random strangers or whatever, that God will suddenly be pleased with me, that my wrongs would have cancelled, my rights, sorry, would have cancelled out my wrongs. Well, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, if I think I've sinned 2,000 times and therefore I'm going to do 2,000 things, 2,000 good things in order to get right with God, then those 2,000 things aren't good at all. They're selfish. They've got the complete wrong motivation because all I'm trying to do is earn my way back into God's good books. And so those good things aren't about me, uh, sorry, aren't about the person that I'm trying to help. They're all about me. And this is what religion does. Religion says, most world religions operate by this, like this, by the way. If your good outweighs your bad, then you might be all right and get into heaven. The problem is even, our, even the things that we do that are good are so often tinged with selfishness, pride, and all of these other kinds of things. So the only way that our debt could be paid then is if God, who we owe the debt to, rips up our IOU. Later on in Matthew's gospel, God, in the person of Jesus, hangs on a cross. And as God, in Jesus, takes all our sin, everything that we've done wrong, he absorbs it into himself. The IOU that we have is ripped up if we throw ourselves at the feet of God and say, have mercy on me. And God says to us, because of what Jesus has done, you are free. You're free. There's a saying that goes like this, religion says do, but Jesus says done. It's done. It is finished. You know, Christianity is not just self-help. In fact, it's not self-help at all. It's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. 
Now, the remarkable thing about this is that God sees our need. He sees our sin. He sees our wickedness. And yet he loves us anyway. And he loves us to heaven. Now, this should completely change our attitude towards others when we are sinned against. But unfortunately, like the servant in the story, not all of us behave like that. Some of us pick up on every affront against us, keep a checklist, and demand that it be repaid. Even though we know we were in a worse position before God, and yet we treat others with contempt. And look, this stuff does not go unnoticed by God. Just like in the parable, the king finds out about this wicked servant's sin. The same is true of us. God knows everything that we do. The psalmist asked, didn't he, where can I go from God's presence? If I go to the depths of the ocean, you are there. If I go to the heights of the heaven, you are there. The psalmist concludes, there's nowhere that I can go from the presence of God. God sees everything. He sees whether the gospel has transformed us. He sees our thoughts and everything. And he'll see if we're just like the unmerciful servants in this story. Now, Jesus ends this parable in verse 35 by saying this, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Now, this is one of the most shocking sayings from Jesus in all of the gospels. Unless you forgive as I've forgiven you, my father will not forgive you. Now, this is strong stuff. Does Jesus mean here that unless we forgive people, we're not going to heaven? Is Jesus somehow teaching that we earn our place in heaven by forgiving others? Well, no, Jesus is not teaching that. Remember, Jesus teaches all the way through the gospel that we're saved by grace alone. Jesus is not teaching here that we can somehow lose our salvation. He's not undermining that. Now, what Jesus is saying is that we're in the parable and the debt that we owed could never be paid. And so God pays it for us. And so who are we to withhold forgiveness from anybody? And if we do hold forgiveness, has the gospel really changed us? Are we really in relationship with God? Now, all of us have issues of unforgiveness to work through, and we need to ask the Holy Spirit to do this. So don't sit there thinking that you haven't worked through a forgiveness issue and somehow God doesn't love you. That is not the case. But God is saying that he's rescued you and that should completely change your life. We forgive not in order to earn our freedom, but because of our freedom. We don't forgive in order to earn salvation, but because of our salvation. Now, let me illustrate just by telling a story. This story comes from South Africa um, after apartheid had legally, um, had legally come, to an, come to an end. And lots of white people who'd committed crimes against black people were put on trial in courts of law set up in part by um, 
Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela called the Truth and Reconciliation Project. And in the Truth and Reconciliation Project, people that had been, that had been offended, that have had atrocities committed against them by white people, um, they got to basically play the role of semi-judge in these Truth and Reconciliation Projects. And if a jury found um, the, people, the people guilty of their crimes, the person that was, um, the person that was affronted, who'd had a crime committed against them, got to set the punishment. So in this court of law one day, there's this old, frail, black lady. And in the witness box, not in the witness box, sorry, on being charged in the, in the defendant, if you like, was a white policeman called Mr. Vanderberg. And Mr. Vanderberg's crimes were read out in front of everybody in the court, and the crime was this. One day, Mr. Vanderberg turned up at this lady's home and kidnapped her son for no reason other than the fact that he was black. That lady never saw her son ever again. One year to the day after her son was kidnapped, Mr. Vanderberg returned to this lady's home, kidnapped her and her husband, and drove them into the woods where her husband was killed in front of her. And so these crimes are read out, and you can imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in the courtroom. He's, Mr. Vanderberg is found guilty, and the judge says to this old lady, what do you want to happen to Mr. Vanderberg? The lady responds and says, I want three things to happen. Firstly, I want somebody to help me to my feet and lead me across the courtroom so I can take Mr. Vanderberg in my arms and hug him. The second thing that I want is that I want Mr. Vanderberg to become my son. That I can treat him as one of my own, that I could pour out my love on him. Because I've got a lot of love to give and I can't love my own son and husband and so I want to feed him, I want him to come to my house, I want to be able to look after him. And the third thing that I want to happen, she said, is that I want Mr. Vanderberg to know that he's completely forgiven because Jesus Christ has completely forgiven me. There was stunned silence. Mr. Vanderberg was in tears and somebody in the courtroom gallery started to sing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Even that lady's actions are just a little glimpse of the grace that's been revealed by God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who have been set free. And the thing about forgiveness is to forgive a prisoner and to set them free is to suddenly realize that the prisoner is you 
As you forgive somebody, freedom comes into your life. As you forgive somebody, grace comes into your life. As you forgive somebody, all of this stuff begins to fade away. You remember the gospel. You remember that God loved you that much that Jesus would die on a cross for you. And your life and heart is completely changed and transformed. Are any of us there yet? Absolutely not. But we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit to get there, to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. Now we're going to respond together now. So if you're here at St. Thomas's, can I invite you to stand? And we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us. And what we're praying for today on the back of this parable is that we'd receive an even bigger awareness of the grace and the love that God has for us. Your IOU has been ripped up by God. You are free. If you've thrown your feet, thrown yourself at the feet of God and said, have mercy on me, I'm sorry. You are free. And so we pray that God by his Holy Spirit will remind us of the amazing good news of Jesus. The second thing we ask for is just to, for the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal where we've behaved like the unmerciful servant in this parable. Where have we treated others as we've not been treated by God? It might be that on the back of this you need to ask somebody for forgiveness. And who do we need to forgive? And for some of us, there's some pretty heavy stuff that we're thinking about right now. And if you need to process any of this, we would love to process it with you. But who is it that you need to forgive on the back of this teaching from Jesus today? A parent, a sibling, a co-worker, an ex-friend. Who is it that you need to go to today and say, I forgive you? And so we pray, come Holy Spirit.